welcome to the second, oh boy, I found, I feel so much like a radio announcer, uh, and this is the second uh, installment of the greatest podcast in history. The greatest podcast in history. I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. And today we're going to talk about the Dreyfus Affair. Yep. We had to discuss the pronunciation of Dreyfus beforehand, uh, but we think we have it right. Yep. We're coming at you uh, for our new studio. Oh yeah, uh, brand <laughs> Recording new studio. studio. Uh, that we have set up here, courtesy of DePaul University. I just can't escape. I thought I graduated, <laughs> and they pulled me right back in. Yeah, you're never really done with DePaul. We have a window and everything, guys. It's, it might be distracting today. It's very fancy, though. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're talking about the Dreyfus Affair today. Uh, if you're reading along at home or following along at home, most of this stuff is going to be coming from Ruth Harris's book, Dreyfus, Politics, Emotion, and the Scandal of the Century. It's a great read. Check it out. I'm not going to give you the Chicago-style uh, bibliography format, because I don't want to, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's a good book. It is good. So the Dreyfus Affair um, is like the crazy story. Uh, it happened in France in the fin de, fin de siècle, again, as we taught, brought up last week. Yeah, the time when everyone's drinking absinthe and mm-hmm. being a pretentious intellectuals. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, And there's a lot of pretentious intellectuals in this story. Not as much absinthe. <laughs> But yeah. uh, a lot of pretentiousness. Uh, lots of uh, anti-Semitism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this and is a story of anti-Semitism. Um, Some people would argue that the Dreyfus Affair is like, it's like the beginning of when World War like one would happen. They're like, oh, like the, some of these events in here show that like World War One was just around the corner. Uh, like that political and like social like mind set of the people at the time. So it's a it's a pretty crazy story. Yeah. Uh, you read the details about it. Um, pick a book. There's, a, I mean, there's a bunch of books about this. It's yeah, it's a very well covered yeah. uh, issue and, and topic because because it, it hits on a lot of different aspects of history. It talks mm-hmm. about uh, it's not just the story of one man. It's yeah. kind of the story of um, a nation, a continent, exactly. and a lot of the kind of common ideology mm-hmm. uh, trends of the day. Exactly. Uh, so just a quick brief overview of the story. We'll just give a little point by point bullets in here. Um, so Dreyfus um, was this guy, and I'm s- blanking so hard on his first name, Alfred, sorry. <laughs> Alfred Dreyfus, um, and this takes place in like the early, late 1800s, like 1894-ish, around that time period. Mm. Um, so he's a, a ranking officer in the French army. Uh, he's like a lieutenant, uh, I believe. Uh, and he was a Jewish officer. Um, and he got arrested for um, being a spy for Germany. Uh, at this point, Germany and France uh, were fighting, and they weren't... Um, they weren't great allies and friends as they are today. Uh, so he gets arrested uh, and imprisoned based on false evidence. Um, it's just like they just made up stuff and they just lied about him. Because, uh, and they, <laughs> we'll talk about this later, but they knew who the actual spy was, mm-hmm. um, but they just refused to admit that they were wrong, the French army. So this created actually a huge scandal in France at the time. Um, and there was a bunch of trials. It was covered by the Americans. They were sending like, telegrams across the ocean day of for like huge expense like everybody was into the story um and so he's in prison he's tried a couple times and each time he's still found guilty even though there's uh like so much evidence proving that he's not he wasn't a spy at all but he's found guilty eventually he's let back into the country he was exiled on uh devil's island um and he was able to live out his life uh in france even though he was like kicked out of uh, the army. or He'd he was, been publicly yeah. humiliated as exactly. two and whatnot. And it's just interesting because when he um, is kind of exiled, there's this big movement rally mm-hmm. that was rallied around him to, to kind of defend him. Um, he kind of became a, a national icon in a different way. Exactly. 
Um, it basically split the country in two. Yeah. With the Dreyfusards and then the anti-Dreyfusards, which is what they called themselves at the time. Very original names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, like, this split the country in half. Um, it was like, it was just, and it had just a huge, like, a huge outcry. Like, it brought down, essentially, a prime minister. He got replaced over this, and it, like, they had, like, the French army got reformed because of this case. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Um, but, like I said, he ended up being able to come back and exactly. live out the rest of his days in yeah. France um, with kind of all the honors that he used to have. But mm -hmm. in, in reality, it was a very tense life. Yeah, because they didn't, so. they were, so when you get in the French army at this point, you were like promoted based on time, essentially. And so he had lost all this year, so he was still a lieutenant. And so people, he, could, he was like, and at this point, he was like 50-some years old, so he was way young, way older than all the other people at his age, so he basically had to quit the army. Yeah. It's a pretty sad story at the end. I and think it, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I think it might be best to start by kind of painting a picture of, yeah. of France at this time. Exactly. And why was there so much this tension? Because um, as kind of some historians have said, if, if you were to think that something like the Holocaust or some giant mm -hmm. anti-Semitic event was going to take place at this time in the late 1800s, yeah. you would say it would happen in France, mm -hmm. largely because of the Dreyfus Affair. Yep. Um, so, so let's just kind of talk about like why, what were kind of like the common ideologies of the time and you know, kind of where, how was this powder keg kind of set up where Dreyfus, the Dreyfus event um, mm -hmm. kind of took place? Yeah, so France at this point was... Um, they were going through a lot of changes. Um, I'll just talk about some specifically military ones. Uh, but like at this point, when Dreyfus was in the army, he was part of this new like school of leaders in the military who were uh, they had studied at schools like specific military schools. So they're super highly trained, very well educated uh, intellectuals essentially, and that word became uh, coined around this time. Um, and so they were like they're this new movement um, in France to bring like a more stringent uh, practice. Not even just the military, but everywhere. It's more intellectual kind of bent. And he was part of that uh, new intellectual school. He was also um, an artillery officer, mm -hmm. which was kind of a, a new, very exactly. rapidly developing yeah. um, section of the army. Kind of had the old uh, old school forms of, the, uh, forms of the army, like the regular infantry and, and mm -hmm. cavalry uh, that had been gaining honor for so long. And yeah. now you had this kind of new, new roles in the army and artillery that uh, wasn't seen as honorable to be as mm -hmm. honorable as exactly. the other forms. And so that like that form, that new like style isn't just military, it's in the whole country. There's a burgeoning movement uh, for intellectualism and like modernity, quote unquote, at the time. Mm -hmm. And this is contrasted with the other half of France, which is, they ended up being called anti-intellectuals. They called themselves this, it wasn't, it didn't have like the same pejorative term that it, uh, meaning that it does today. But these people were more bound in like the honor traditions of old France, um, like, and just for to show you in the military how it worked, like you basically had like a mentor who saw you through the process. It wasn't really about schooling; it was about who you knew. And the the main idea is that the country was always right. Like the state and the government and the military were one hundred percent correct on everything. It's like this old version of like they they might be democratically elected or whatever, but we have to listen to whatever they do, whatever they say. So you have that contrasted with this new movement, which Dreyfus is a part of, where they're questioning. Uh, the government and they're saying, well, maybe they're not always right. 
So you have these two big branches going on mm -hmm. in the military and at finance at the time. And it's still interesting because um, there's still an, an idea that you could be an intellectual and still be a nationalist. Mm -hmm. uh, nationalism in this era was rapidly becoming like the new trend exactly. in every single country. Um, and you see it in a lot of like in the smaller uh, parts about the Dreyfus affair, you see Alfred Dreyfus reaffirm again and again that he is a Frenchman first. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, he is a Frenchman. He would never betray his country, um, even though he's uh, Jewish and part of this intellectual movement. Mm -hmm. And he was also from the Alsace-Lorraine region, or his family was at least. So they have connections to Germany, which is why one of the reasons he was like pinpointed as the person they were going to lay the blame on. Yeah. Because the Alsace-Lorraine region has been like always a hotly contested uh, region on the border between Germany and France. Exactly. Um, and the biggest um, incident came in 1870 and 1871 with the Franco-Prussian War, mm -hmm. um, in which uh, Germany, um, or actually it was just Prussia at this time, uh, leading a bunch of German states, uh, invaded France and rapidly destroyed them, uh, laid claim to the Alsace-Lorraine region, um, as part of the new German state territory, um, as Germany was founded as an actual country. Um, and so in, kind of, in time, the wake of this, this war, this short, short war, really shook France, because exactly. they thought that they were yeah. um, hot stuff uh, mm -hmm. in Europe, and they were the big dogs. But now you have this rapidly rising power in Prussia, and then in, uh, subsequently in Germany, uh, really shaking the French identity to its exactly. core. There's, uh, in the Ruth Harris book, there's a couple of quotes from Dreyfus specifically of him writing about the fall of the Alsace-Lorraine region. And he's like, he's literally like crying while he's writing this letter. Um, he's so like devastated by the loss of this land. He was such like a Frenchman. And he's like, yeah, when I heard the news, I don't have the quote in front of me, but when he's like, when I heard the news, like I was devastated, I ripped and rent my clothes because he was just so sad about the loss of this land and what it meant for France. Yeah, there is um, another example of kind of like how this really shook um, every aspect of French culture was the um, the Bazaar de la Charité fire mm -hmm. in 1897. Um, so basically there was a bunch of, it was this, a society event for charity where um, in this incident, uh, there was a giant fire in the in the bazaar, yeah. um, in the tents and stuff like that. And wait, basically, what happened was all the rich aristocratic men started fleeing and throwing everything to the yep. side and Classic just trying to people. escape. Flee in the scene. Meanwhile, the women reportedly on the scene um, were the ones who were trying to remain calm and trying exactly. to get everyone out securely and safely. Mm -hmm. And this became a really characterized uh, or kind of like criticized aspect of, or an incident, which they, um, kind of, people who were making commentary on this incident said, well, look, your women are more brave than your French men. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that ties into military mm -hmm. and masculinity and honor exactly. and all this stuff. This idea that, like, the men were losing their way, they were losing their traditional masculinity, is something that the anti-Dreyfusards really, like, pulled on throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, it was just a thing that was happening in France, is, like, the, with these growing ideas of intellectualism and going to school for longer, they tied this in with like being less manly and such. And they had, in Dreyfus, they had a bit of a scapegoat. He wasn't like a huge dude or anything. He was pretty slight, wore glasses. Um, so he was a poster child for their pointed anti-masculine bars. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wasn't the most, he wasn't like a huge 
No. Muscular exactly. guy. Right? Like I'm that. trying to think of like a muscular Frenchman, but I can't pull any. Um, oh, Jean, no, Jean-Claude Van Damme is Belgian. Uh, are there, I don't think there's any actually big French dudes. Um, probably Joan of Arc would probably be the, yeah. <laughs> the only, only one. Yeah, Joan um, of Arc could kick your ass. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Make no mistake about it. Yeah. All right. So back to the Dreyfus affair mm-hmm. um, and how it gets started. So we, as we discussed, there's this huge like climate, this brewing storm. It hasn't really po- nothing like has happened yet, really, mm-hmm. but it's like in the background of all this stuff. So the French army, they find out someone's spying on them, and it's like the weirdest stuff. It's not even like that big of a deal. It's basically just how some of the French cannons work. They discover that some of these secrets are being leaked. And uh, I mean, it's and there's some more stuff like that. There's troop movements and stuff, uh, but mostly it's um, discovering how um, what's a note on the hydraulic brake of the 120 millimeter cannon and on the manner in which this part has performed. So like pretty small stuff. Critical. Mostly. Yeah, critical. You can critical shake, information. You know, invade France that easily. <laughs> Um, but how it, it was found, it's interesting mm-hmm. how it was found, yeah. because wasn't it, it was found by a maid or kind exactly. of a janitor? It was found um, by a cleaning lady, uh, Marie Bastan, who was regularly going through um, the trash cans of like the German military, like diplomat uh, at the German embassy in France. And she would just go through his trash. And this guy, Maximilian uh, von Schwarzkoppen, uh, like apparently wasn't very smart because uh, he didn't like rip up his trash or... Uh, do anything like that, like burn it or whatever. And so this cleaning lady, uh, at the behest of the French government, would go through his trash every day, and she found these notes from this spy. And so she yeah. brought them to her superiors. Yeah. And um, so right away they knew something was wrong, um, and they had to figure it out. And so um, they, it was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jean Sandhair, who was uh, this like really anti-Semitic dude on the general <laughs> staff, and so he, along with some other people, started leading on uh, to try to find this guy. And so they focused on Dreyfus um, pretty much uh, almost right away, mostly because of his artillery, artillery experience. Yeah. Because of this information about the cannons, they're like, okay, someone has to, it has to be someone in um, the art in the artillery who works yeah. with that. And then they also focused on him because, first of all, the guy doing the investigation was an anti-Semite, and because he was part of this new, like, uh, military school trained uh, class of officers in the military, and the investigators weren't, and they didn't, and so um, Dreyfus didn't have anybody to protect him. Essentially, yeah, he they felt threatened high, by yeah. this new, this mm-hmm. new kind of. Uh, and he didn't have any horizon. higher ups looking out for him, looking over his back. Yeah, and so it was pretty easy to find. He's uh, pretty easy person to like pinpoint as who it was. Yeah, they were, um, and they were able to narrow it down just because of the um, the school, the new mm-hmm. military academy. Um, so that narrowed down extremely um, small, exactly. and then also the his ties to since his family was from Alsace Lorraine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they had the further that connection. They're like, oh, he's probably a German spy because he's from this region. Yeah. Which was ridiculous. Because it was historically French. Yeah. Exactly. And he was very much a French nationalist. Mm-hmm. He's French through and through. Yeah. And so they immediately pinpoint on him. They don't arrest him right away. Uh, they do some like. There's a lot of like uh, handwriting like analysis in this story. Like they bring in like oh eight different handwriting analysis to like to read the writing on the note that they found and who it was. And like none of them, of course, matched with Dreyfus, but they just covered up and they just ignored all that information right away. Yeah, because there's and there's a sense in the French military that no matter what, they had to find someone. 
mm-hmm. someone to blame to show that I mean they were efficient and that they were still in control and that they had authority, um, the same authority that had been shaken in the Franco-Prussian War. Exactly. They wanted to prove that they still uh, could do this. Yeah. Um, and so they eventually they finally um, arrest Dreyfus on these trumped up charges, uh, and they just take him away. There he doesn't he's not allowed to see his wife. He's not allowed to see his kids. Um, until much later, like three or four days later, uh, when it finally gets out. But while this is all happening, while this investigation is happening, they actually find the dude who did it, or at least there's people on the guy's trail, uh, and he pretty much admits to like the French army that he's the one who was doing it. He was just this two-bit spy, um, I'm forgetting his name, but he had like he gave real bad information, like Maximilian von Schwarzkoppen, who was like running him, like didn't like him that much. Yeah. He was he was. 100% prepared to throw him uh, to the wolves. He eventually wrote a letter to the French uh, telling them that it was this guy, that Dreyfus did not do it, and that this is our spy in France, and they didn't listen to him at all. Because they wanted Dreyfus to be the person who it was. So they had the right person in his hand, but at this point, it didn't matter if they it was right or not. Yeah, They just like they wanted to arrest like this Jewish guy who was from Alsace-Lorraine to prove that they were still in control. That is, that's just not how you want to run things. No, not at all. The French were like, they were so entrenched in the ideas that, no, the military is always right. Yeah. That they had to win this court case, no matter what it took. Yeah, which, I mean, things like that actually kind of sound German. Like, you would think that those ideas would be um, typically German, but it just kind of goes to show that that kind of sentiment was, um, you could see it throughout Europe at this time. Exactly, it was everywhere, all over the place. Uh, Revanche. Mont is one of the words that is usually used for it. Revanchement is a French word. Exactly. I thought that's what you were going to say. No, I'm not going to explain what it means. It's like retrenching, essentially. Also, I just realized in this book that um, Ruth Harris uses the word titbits instead of tidbits, which is a pretty funny (laughs) thing. I think she's like, uh, she's English. Um, So titbits is a great word. So, um, so he's captured, he's put in jail, yeah. and the first trial is happening. Uh, it's a court-martial trial, so it's not an actual trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, was, there were actually a few officers who realized what was happening, and they tried to stop this from going on. But they were immediately shut up by the higher-ups in charge of it, and they weren't allowed to like present their case. Uh, Jaffus wasn't allowed to argue on his behalf at all. Um, he, I don't think he even had a lawyer at this point. Um, or if he did, like he wasn't really able to do anything. Um, and the funny thing is, at this point, there's this idea in France and in Europe that when you're on trial, you should act a certain way. That there's this idea that like guilty people act differently than non-guilty people. Yeah. And it basically is like flustered emotions, like highly charged uh, actions, like almost hysteria, essentially, is what non-guilty people were supposed to do when they were wrongly accused. Yeah, because you're supposed to be so emotional saying exactly. it wasn't me, and yeah. you're, so, you're supposed to have tears streaming down your face mm-hmm. declaring that you know, you're know you innocent, you're innocent. Yeah. Um, but Dreyfus didn't do that at all. Yeah. He's essentially just stone-faced the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and as Ruth Harris writes, um, he, uh, Dreyfus, he destructed, uh, distrusted histronics, and his monotonous voice irritated the court. So he's basically just talking like a robot, and not because he was a robot or because he was, that's just how he, the pers- kind of person he was. But this really, really made all the generals and stuff in the court martial super angry against him. And so because he wasn't acting 
like an innocent person was. So at this point, there might have been a chance that he would have gotten off if he had started, you know, crying and bawling hysterically about how it wasn't, uh, it wasn't him and he wasn't a bad guy. And this, never, but he refused to do that because he knew. I mean, he knew he was right. He knew he yeah. wasn't the spy, and so he just refused to act like he was supposed to act. And in this, and so he got sent to Devil's Island uh, on false charges. Sounds like a lovely place to, to visit. Yeah, it's beautiful. Copacabana uh, is based <laughs> off of uh, Devil's Island. It's actually the worst place in the world. <laughs> uh, it's so, it's horrible. Like, he almost died of malaria, like, a bunch of times. Um, he was trapped. He was basically in a cell uh, the first time he was there. He wasn't allowed to see anybody. wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. Uh, the guards who brought him his, like, meager, meager rations, like, water and bread, like, didn't, weren't allowed to talk to him. He almost died while it was there. Yeah, I, I think their plan was to let him die on Devil's mm-hmm. Island. And with that, even if they were wrong... Um, the truth dies with them and it's kind of just done. Exactly. Because at this point, it wasn't really, people knew about this case, um, but it wasn't the huge thing that it was. There was like, there was big drama when they found us, then they learned that there was a spy, the papers covered that. Mm -hmm. And then when they found Dreyfus, they're like, there was a lot of anti-Semite stuff going on in the papers, uh, but it wasn't this huge national, like international story at this point. And so they figured once he got sent off to Devil's Island, which is, you know, out in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, it's, like nobody goes there at all, so they just figured, okay, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, we're fine. Um, so then, but they start relooking at the case um, because it's actually um, Alfred Dreyfus's brother, Matthew, yep. um, realizes that his brother was innocent the entire time and knows it, mm-hmm. and he starts trying to get any attention he can get. Yeah. Uh, basically, any press is good press in his mind. And so he gets in touch with this guy, Bernard Lazar. Mm-hmm. Who is an anarchist? Uh, he's he's also Jewish, or he has, at least he has Jewish parents. And he's a journalist and a critic, mm-hmm. um, and so he's not like he's not super well respected this time, Lazar. But he's one of the few people who will actually take up this story and put it in print. Yeah, um, and this is kind of it's also interesting because it's kind of one of the first times that the mass media got involved in in a exactly. case in anything. Yeah. Um, so you kind this of is where the OJ trial started. Ooh, the original OJ trial. The original trial. OJ trial. Instead of a, a Ford uh, Bronco, yeah. is a uh, an actual Bronco pulling a, a, a carriage <laughs> down the street. Big car chase. I God, I wish there was a car chase in this. That <laughs> like a carriage oh, chase. Yeah. They just went to his house and like picked him up. Or no, this is at work. It wasn't even his house. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even this, even this first attempt to to drum up media support isn't enough. It's exactly. not getting in the papers. So what they do to to get uh, people really interested in this is they start a rumor that uh, he had escaped from Devil's Island. Exactly, they wanted to draw people's attention back to it. Yeah. And the, like the military is like so incompetent at this point <laughs> that they can't even like successfully prove that they couldn't even like drum up enough fake evidence against Dreyfus to like, so there's still people in the military who are talking about this case. There's still people in the press who are talking about it and whispering about it. And so there's like, they can't even like, like effectively just like shunt somebody to the side. Yeah, they even, um, they even start to try and quote unquote like leak documents, exactly. the military yeah. does, um, that were related to the case in hopes that it would kind of shore up the case and mm-hmm. quell any rumors or anything like that. But this actually backfired completely because by leaking these documents, it essentially made it further apparent that Dreyfus was, was innocent. Exactly. People were like, 
oh, that's not his handwriting at all. Yeah. Like they were, they were so like incompetent at this. Yeah. And so more and more people are talking about this case now. And Dreyfus, I mean, Dreyfus is still on Devil's Island by himself. He still can't talk to his wife. Um, and he still can't talk to his kids or anything. He's still, he's practically dead this whole time. But now he has people on his side. And this is where the first Dreyfusard coalition begins. And so they're still writing, they're still writing, and they're drumming up support and support, but it doesn't really happen, like, the groundswell uh, of pro Dreyfusard people doesn't really come about until Emily Zola gets involved in this story. Uh, so Zola is this huge French writer at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, I mean, and still today, he's considered one of the French literary greats. Um, he wrote uh, novels. Um, oh, I don't care about which ones. Um, <laughs> La Rare, not that's the name of a magazine. Um, I think La Asmoire was his first big one. But he's, um, he's like this famous French literary guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he writes an article uh, entitled Jacques. Jacques. Uh, and this is the big letter that gets the trial actually yeah. started. And it's, like, it's become kind of a, a, a saying now. Like, exactly. Like, the Jacques is like, that's like the historical flashpoint for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, is this Jacques letter. Even though it didn't really come around until later. And Zola kind of just like, he wasn't really involved with the J. Fussards. He just like, uh, kind of like hopped on to their side. And he was pretty much an outside figure for the whole thing. But in a lot of people's minds, he was the one who actually started and led the charge. Yeah. Even though that's not really true. Yeah. Um, Something where, where things really, I, mean, I might be jumping ahead, but where yeah. things really um, kind of took off was when, uh, kind of in these military leaks that they were doing, they released the memo, the one that was found in the trash can. There was exactly. a copy of it, and people were looking at the, um, the handwriting of it, and they said, that's not Dreyfus's handwriting. Exactly. It's, um, what's his name? Uh, Esterhazy mm-hmm. was the actual spy. Um, and so just seeing that, people were clamoring about that, saying mm-hmm. it's really not his. Um, so then you, you kind of start to see these two sides, the Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards. Um, and a lot of the anti-Dreyfusards were saying things like, okay, well, they, they, even they admitted that it wasn't, it might not be Dreyfus's handwriting, yeah. but they said that this is what the military said, the military is right. Uh, when we should go along with it exactly. that was for like, the betterment yeah. of France. Mm-hmm. That was their point, that we can't let the military be wrong because otherwise French will, France will collapse. Yeah, we they, have to support them at all costs. They held a lot of the old traditional beliefs. Exactly. Like they, were, they were also very much royalists mm-hmm. um, and very old Catholics. Yeah, most of them were Catholics on the yeah. Andre Boussard side. Because there was an idea also in France at this time that to be French was to be Catholic mm-hmm. and to be Catholic was to be French. Yep. Um, that they were mutually exclusive, or were not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And <laughs> they got that mixed up. And, um, and so that pushed them even further away from uh, any ties to uh, the Jewish faith. Exactly. And it's, well, if side note, interesting fun fact, Esther Hazy, the actual spy in this case, um, in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, Jean Le Carre, bases a character's name off that. Just a fun fact about it. He's not a spy in the book, but I thought yeah. everyone would like to know. Read the book, watch the movie. It's cool. Anyway. Read the right. book after you read Ruth Harris's Dreyfus, Politics and Motion and the Scandal of the Century. Scandal. Scandal. Yeah. Uh, so, and speaking on this religion, there's another point. Um, because a lot of the Dreyfusards uh, were specifically non Catholic, or if they were Catholic, they were very lax in their faith and wanted to reform the church. But that doesn't mean they weren't 
anti-religious. They were, a lot of them were like spiritualists and they were really into like things like spirit photography and doing Ouija boards and communing with the dead, which was yeah. a new thing that was happening uh, in Europe at the time, was this the rise of spiritualism. And so there's stories of people of Jay Fussards bringing in like these like woodland, uh, like people, like women's who, women who lived in the woods and supposedly could like tell like the future and read fortunes and stuff. And so they would have, they would do tarot readings about this case. Yeah. And eventually they got like that, got chunded to the side. Yeah. But it, for a while it was a big part of the Dre Fussard was this spiritualist stuff that was yeah. happening. Well, I think Harris actually says that um, both, both sides were actually very much into spiritualism mm -hmm. and that they were much more complex than people typically give them credit for. Uh, because it's super easy to just jump on the bandwagon or jump on the side of the uh, Drake Fussards and see them as the quote unquote like good guys or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but both sides were heavily into spiritualism, and I just like the image of kind of like a, a military general screaming yeah. at his <laughs> underlings, saying, "You know, we got to get this guy. We got to get Dreyfus out of the here. You know, he's he's ruining everything. Now leave me alone. Go handle that. I'm gonna mess with my Ouija board. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to get my palms red <laughs> next. That happened a lot. There's pictures of people with like supposedly like floating hands in the background and they're doing all sorts of, they call it an ectoplasmic manifestation. Yeah. There's lots of like this crazy pseudoscience going on. Yeah. And it's easy to, it's easy to read the Dreyfusar, just like the good guys who are writing everything. But there's a lot of like weird pseudoscience going on. A lot of like anti-religious stuff that they were doing, uh, and so there's both sides are super complex, and you can't just be like, oh, all the Dreyf all the uh, Dreyfusards were good, and all the anti-Dreyfusards were quote unquote bad. Yeah, and I, I think Harris also says something that um, those, the, the most educated people were the most likely to be nat heavy nationalists. Exactly. Um, so it wasn't, and then which is kind of the opposite today. I mean, today mm -hmm. you see. Um, hillbillies in the woods running around with confederate flags saying that they are U.S. is the greatest country ever to be if you don't like it get off my land exactly or you see kind of some like a pudgy skinhead um, English guy with an England flag uh, exactly, the same yeah. thing um, Brexit yeah <laughs> sounds good to me oh boy yeah um, so today nationalism has this uh, like you're stupid exactly um, yeah. because you buy into the idea that countries can be great um, when back then the most educated people were most likely to be uh, exactly. nationalists um, and they also were most likely to be into the occult and mm -hmm. and whatnot and spirits <laughs> people were uh, idiots back in the yeah. day so uh, back to the case so Zola gets involved and he he's actually forced to flee, flee to England once mm -hmm. uh, Jacques Hughes is published as well as some other things because the French government is targeting him um, so he goes, so he's in England or whatever, but he gets all this attention, creates the need for a second case. And all the Dreyfus are working behind the scenes. We're skipping over a lot of stuff here. Um, but there's various um, salons at the time happening who are getting involved with this, like elites, intellectual and political and uh, economic elites are all getting involved in this. And then the wall is the mass public. Mm -hmm. There starts to be several riots um, led by both anti-Dreyfus and the Dreyfus at this time. Uh, so the whole country is getting involved, and it starts to become international as well. Uh, and there's calls for a second trial to happen um, against uh, Dreyfus. And so they're able to do it. They're able, they're able to get the second trial to happen. And this becomes like the case of the century. Everyone's, they bring Dreyfus from Devil's Island, who is miraculously somehow <laughs> still alive. Yeah. He's on death's door. He's lost like 
50 pounds. Who yeah, he was already a skinny guy. Yeah. He was already a small guy. Mm-hmm. And they were keeping him strapped down on Devil's Island in a bed, even though there was only pe- the only people who were there were him and guards. There was nowhere for him to go. And he yeah. gets an island in the middle of the ocean. Uh, but they still kept him strapped down into his bed. Yeah, it was time. so hot. And yes. he was yes. he was hallucinating most of the time. Yeah. It was, um, so, but he's still alive somehow. And so they bring him in for this second trial. And as I said, this was the case of the century. American newspapers came over, brought over reporters. They paid for same-day cross-Atlantic uh, <laughs> telegrams, which was so expensive. Yeah. Like, it's insanely how much they cost. But everybody wanted the news of this. So from everywhere, all over Europe, this was a, it was a nightmare. Like, it was a huge, huge thing. Mm-hmm. And it was, but it was still a military trial at this point. It wasn't, because he was a military officer, it was a military thing. Yeah. And it became, it, it was so big because it, it wasn't, even though it was a military trial, it wasn't just about um, the military anymore. Exactly. People started to think it was about the future of France. Yeah. That's essentially why it got so big. Like the, how France will go into the new century will be decided by this court case. Is exactly. basically what people were thinking. And so before we get there, we should talk about the salons a little bit. Yeah. That was always fun. Um, so when people think of salons, I feel like they think automatically of, like, French Revolution salons. People, like, Robespierre debating each other yeah. you know, in the back rooms of coffee houses. Uh, these weren't really like that. Uh, these, I mean, people, like, did debate, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it was, they were mostly led by women, uh, super upper-class women. Yeah. And they were like so like it was such like a chess game. They're like collecting people essentially. Yeah, they um, the women were. This is kind of like the, one of the biggest ways that women could be involved in politics exactly. and intellectual movements. They they would host the the events and they would handpick you know who was going to sit next to who. It was so curious. They spent most of their time working on yeah. these salons. and they even decided like what topics people would talk about. Exactly. Um, so. Like say by putting a a politician next to a writer, they could the woman could hostess could hopefully like sway that politician's uh, mm-hmm. views on a certain issue, knowing that that writer had um, would would be able to present cases very convincingly. Or by not letting not inviting someone who they usually invite to a salon, they could show their that they did not trust them anymore, or they were mad at them for some certain reason. Yeah, so these salons had a huge, huge influence on this case and were a big part of the reason why everyone was talking about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, they were, everyone there were often, was often high, highly educated. I think mm-hmm. the, the English called uh, the, the people who attended salons the great and the good. Yeah. Um, Even, I mean, there, there were anti-Dreyfusard salons, there were Dreyfusard salons. Um, I mean, this is how people got their political careers, was if they, like, with the right salonier, is what uh, the women who led these things were called, they found the right person to back them, and they got on their good side. They they would have they would be set for life essentially. Yeah, which is very different from any dinner party I've ever been yeah. to. Yeah, I've never been to a cool dinner party <laughs> where I got like a government job. Yeah. for you know talking about like the <laughs> bank collapse or whatever. Yeah, I, I can I can only kind of uh, BS my way for so long. Um. Exactly. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think I can truly say I've been to like an actual like adult dinner party yet. No. It's still mostly just like people watching football games and like eating chips. Yeah, that's what that's what like a good dinner party for yeah. me. Um, if we're feeling fancy, you know, we'll get um, like Budweiser instead of Bud Light. Exactly. Oh, At least for me. Oh. Maybe not Sometimes, for you. I mean, for me, it's more like we'll order 
instead of ordering Domino's, we'll order a Pizza Hut. There you go. It's like, wow, oh, baby, we're living <laughs> big. Discussing intellectual events. Um, but these people were eating like caviar and like the, they had like trained chefs. Yeah. Cook these. It was, they were, they're like, and they're, they happen every week. Yeah. They're like the biggest social events. And if you didn't get invited to one, you were basically nobody. Yeah. And it, it was the place where you, like the higher ups would actively kind of shape the policy for, for France mm-hmm. and the culture. Exactly. The we're all happening at these salons. Yeah. So back to the trial. Uh, we're back there now. And it's actually looking pretty good for Dreyfus. Um, he's got a lot of the court people there are still in, um, are like, he's maybe about like half and half on who is supporting him and who's not. There isn't, there's an active movement now in the military and in the government to um, exonerate him, to let him free because they know it's just wrong. There's a lot of people, just common people um, on his side now. Um, but then there's still this anti Dreyfus art movement. And so these two, these two sides, especially in the higher up in the government's, are trying to come together with a compromise for what they can do. Because they know they have to get rid of this problem. It's just causing too many problems for yeah. France. He didn't die on Devil's Island like they hoped. Exactly. Uh, so now what do you do? And now there's riots in the streets and people are actually yeah. dying about because of this case. So they have to figure it out. Um, but And they get so close. They get so close to figuring it out. They're like, well, um, exonerate him, but have to leave the army. They get all these compromises. But when it comes down to the trial, Dreyfus won't play his part. Mm-hmm. All they, all really, the military wants of him is to is to act like they think an innocent person should act. They want him to do the crying thing again. They want him to be distressed, but he doesn't. He does the same monotonous voice he does before. The same, just like I'm going to tell the facts like it is. This is me. I'm not going to cry or anything. And so for the second time. And this trial, and this trial goes on for a couple of days. Everyone's covering it every day. He gets found guilty again. Yeah, and he can also, I mean, barely stand. Yeah, he can barely walk. <laughs> so. He's like, he's on crutches the whole time. Yeah. Um, and he gives like this speech at the end that just turns like people against him. And so he loses the case a second time, even though there's now reams and reams of evidence. Like the fact that the military covered this up is so evident to everybody. And yet he still loses his case, and he's sent back to Devil's Island. And there's another national empire about this. <laughs> and so yeah. the case still goes on. They can't figure this out. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, so there's like, oh boy. So what finally happens, how he finally gets out of this mess, and the Drebusards are still working um, for him, but now because they lost this case that they should have won, the coalition starts to fall apart. All his supporters, there's a lot of breaks in the Dreyfusar, a lot of cracks in the whole movement, and they start becoming super obvious and super evident. And so the coalition kind of falls apart. They don't really have the strength they used to anymore. Yeah. And so they lose their... They, but what happens is uh, the prime minister, is, uh, who was a huge anti-Dreyfusard, is uh, voted out of office for various reasons. Some of them involved in the Dreyfus case, a lot of them not involved in the Dreyfus case. Yeah. And he's replaced with a Dreyfusard, or at least someone who is nominally on the side of Dreyfus. Yeah. And he thinks that this case is like a pretty big scandal against the French government. He's not one of these people who thinks that whatever the military does is automatically right. And so finally they're able to get him to free him, essentially. But he's not, he's still not, he's taken out Devil's Island, he's allowed to go back home, he's reinstalled in the military. At a much lower rank that like isn't good for him, so he leaves it eventually because it's garbage. But they still won't say that he didn't 
No, he didn't spy. Yeah, when it's ridiculous. They refuse, they like, um, commute the sentence essentially is what they do, but they refuse to say that he's not guilty. Yeah. And this, like I said, this, this Dreyfusard coalition that had been such a, an, an activator um, and, and had such agency within uh, the culture and politics of France um, now kind of was falling apart. Um, exactly. It was partly because um, because the the first Dreyfusards had typically been kind of poorer mm-hmm. uh, or people on the outskirts of society. If they were if they were kind of high ranking intellectuals, they were intellectuals who were kind of on the on the fringes of the exactly. of the, the slums and stuff like that. Um, but as it, it slowly kind of became more mainstream and the more kind of aristocratic people. Um, and more middle class who became J. Fussards slowly kind of pushed out these the initial supporters exactly. of Dreyfus. Um, and that kind of that, that changed the makeup of, of this this coalition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so these and these more wealthy people started to want more things because they were more involved in the movement and they went and started to want things that were actively against the interests of say your Bernard Lazar, who was this anarchist Jewish guy. Uh, and like the one of the basically the founders of um, the Dreyfusard movement, and so he was like eventually kicked out. They denied like him access to anything. They cut all ties, severed all ties with him and with several other people in the movement. And so it eventually because they wanted different things. Yeah. Uh, what it, the so the more wealthy Dreyfusards just wanted it to be over. They just wanted um, they either wanted um, Dreyfus to die a martyr, yeah. or. Um, they just wanted the court case to be won. And after the court case was lost, they didn't really, they were like, all right, like, we kind of have to give this up. Like, we don't really have anything to fight with anymore. Yeah. Then the hardcore Dreyfusard, like his brother, all the other people, they wanted, just, they basically wanted their brother to be free. Yeah. And so, like, there was this huge split in the movement. It's a lot like, um, a lot of, like, these single-issue parties that have kind of come up um, in American history, like the Greenbackers or, um, like, around this time. Yeah. Through the century, it was all about, um, like, our, do you go by the gold standard? Exactly, uh, the silver standard. Yeah, so, it, and those, all those parties fizzled out really quickly as soon as they started debating uh, more broad issues. Exactly. Yeah, this, the Dreyfusard was never going to be, like, a long-term political movement yeah. for, like, a nationalist France that wasn't led by the military. Yeah. Uh, it just, there's too many cracks, too many fissures within the movement for that to do anything. Yeah. So, I mean, there's somewhat of a happy note of the story because he is, Dreyfus is allowed uh, home. He's still alive. He's able to uh, still be with his wife who stuck with him this whole time. She yeah. was a big part of the Dreyfus art movement. Yeah, Harris talks a lot about the kind of how much they love each other and stuff like yeah. that. And it's kind of, it's kind of nice because when we think about people from the past, especially like the 1800s, we see them as wearing all black, very Victorian, yeah. uh, very stuck up and stuff like that. Like That's arranged this, marriages-ish. Yeah, so yeah. it's nice to see kind of a, a case of what seems like true love. Yeah, I mean, um, and she had, you know, she had to go through a lot. She was yeah. being constantly spied on by the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all her letters were read um, to Dreyfus, and then she's had a lot of like hate against her throughout this whole thing because she was supposedly the wife of a spy, and she was also Jewish, so there's that anti-Semitic part going on too. Yeah. But she stuck with the, through him the whole time. Uh, their kids were still alive, able to see their dad again. Uh, he finally got declared not guilty, like not until like post-World War One, I, I want to say. Like it was like they had some sort of national like referendum on it because he was never... Um, but it was like a very long time until France like was actually like, yeah, you didn't do this. Like, 
we're bad. We'll officially like, um, we'll officially declare you not the spy, even though he had been free. Um, just because they were, it was such like a ridiculous thing. Yeah. Uh, Jafus ended up dying uh, in 1935, uh, 12 June. So yeah, a couple so years he, he made lived, it before World War II. But he lived a you know a long life too. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's fantastic that he was able to come through that and still uh, survive. Exactly. Um, and his wife Lucy uh, died, also died at, when she was 75 in 1945. So she made it. Um, after the liberation of Paris, she was able to return. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's a it's a crazy story because it's like so um, it's so it's almost to us at least to our like modern eyes it's so ridiculous because he was so obviously not guilty and everybody knew that he was not guilty. Yeah. But there were still millions of people willing to defend uh, the French military because in their eyes it was such an important part of what it meant to be French. That mm-hmm. it had to be protected at all costs. Yeah, and in a sense, it's kind of a, it's an important story for for us anyone who's looking back in, in anything in history mm-hmm. um, that you can't really look at it with modern eyes because exactly. to us it's so ridiculous that someone could trust the military in the face of such overwhelming yeah. evidence. But uh, to them, it was it wasn't strange at all. Yeah, they were still they were convinced that Dreyfus did do it. Yeah. Like, even in the face of all this handwriting, all, like, the obvious cover-ups, they were still 100% convinced that Dreyfus was the spy because the military told them that he was. Yeah, and because they were worried about the future of France. Exactly. Um, and their, and their mm-hmm. people. And this, the Dreyfus Fair did go a long way to end that. This is one of, like, the big events with, like, that, the start of, like, the distrust of government. Yeah. It's because of the Dreyfus Affair. As we saw, there are millions of people on the side of Dreyfus who, who were also brought up in the same way that the anti-Dreyfusards were, but then this opened up to their minds that, like, oh, we can't always trust the government. So this was a, a big switch, um, and World War One was probably the biggest one where people just realized how bad the military could be. Yeah. But this is one of those first, uh, like, seminal moments with that cutting off of the trust from the government yeah. uh, and the people. Yeah. So I guess we're we're done with that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if you um, want to read more, the Ruth Harris book really is very good. Yeah, uh, check it out. There's lots of there's some crazy stuff in this story, especially with this, all the spiritualism stuff going on. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a bunch of riots we didn't talk about really uh, that were like started by both sides. Um, mm-hmm. Like this is a huge huge event. Again, there's no like real comparison today. Like, not really. The OJ trial was that was this big, but like the OJ trial was mostly just America. Yeah. Like, this was literally an international trial of the century. Yeah. It's uh, like, I guess, not even, like, Saddam Hussein's trial was, like, this big. Yeah. Like, it was huge. And it's, I mean, the, the book is also really good because it gives you, it's not just telling the story of the Dreyfus Affair. Exactly. It, it gives you a really great overview and kind of snapshot of France and Europe at this time on the eve of World War One, mm-hmm. And you can see a lot of more important and broader themes um, that anyone who's fascinated in the time period should should be aware of. Exactly. Uh, so this is, has been the greatest podcast in history. The, the Travis Severe version. Yes. Uh, thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. I'm going to hit you with the outro music.